This is Philosophy Bites with me, Nigel Warburton. And me, David Edmonds. Philosophy Bites is unfunded. Please help us keep it going by subscribing or donating at www.philosophybites.com or you can become a patron at Patreon. Accurate figures are hard to come by, but worldwide, perhaps 500 million people practice Buddhism. Buddhism is a religion founded on the teachings of the spiritual leader Buddha, born in the 6th century BC. It has no place for a god. Grand Priest is at the City University of New York. He says that Buddhism is particularly rich in philosophical insight. Grand Priest, welcome to Philosophy Bites. Hi, Nigel. The topic we're going to focus on is Buddhism and philosophy. Now, we know that Buddhism is, amongst other things, a religion, but how is it relevant to philosophy? Well, you're certainly right that Buddhism is a religion. It has its sacred texts, its sacred places, its rituals, its priesthoods, and so on. However, like most religions, it has a philosophical underpinning, a view of the nature of the world and metaphysics. It has views about how you should live and how you should treat others, has an ethics. It has views about how you know all these things. So these are all standard philosophical questions, metaphysics, ethics, epistemology, and whether or not you subscribe to the religious side of the practices, you can certainly be interested in the philosophical aspects. That doesn't even mean you have to believe them. Is that in the spirit of Buddhism? Religions tend to be dogmatic. There's a sense in which you need to believe this because it's true. Well, if you subscribe to any religion, there's an element of dogmatism. Buddhism as a religion is no different. So, I mean, if you're trained in a Buddhist monastery, I'm sure you're not taught to question any more than if you're trained in a Catholic ceremony. But that doesn't mean that you cannot adopt a philosophical attitude to it. And it must be said that Buddhist philosophers have argued amongst themselves about a number of these things. So there isn't one catechism you've got to subscribe to. And, of course, in the history of Buddhism, the Buddhists have been arguing with the Hindus and the Taoists. And so there's a tradition of philosophical debate right through the history of the development of Buddhism. And just to sort of cap it off, because Buddhism is an atheist religion, there's no such thing as revealed theology as there is in Christianity. In Christianity, there are some things you can figure out for yourself and some things you can only know because God's told you. But since there's no God in Buddhism, you can't have that. So in the end, you have to figure out all for yourself. And in one of the sutras, the Kalama Sutra, the Buddha says, don't believe something simply because a sensible or a wise or a good person tells you. Go and figure it out and see if it works. In the end, you've got to figure it out for yourself. Let's take the metaphysics to start with. There is a, a range of Buddhist schools, but there is a dominant view about the nature of reality that emerges from Buddhism. No, there are several different views about the nature of reality that emerge in Buddhism. There's common ground about the nature of the self, which is where, in a sense, the metaphysics all starts from. The self is a part of you, which is constant throughout the time at which you exist and defines you as you. That's what Buddhists mean by self. And it's orthodox that there's no such thing. So the standard metaphor is a chariot, but let's update it a bit, your car. What's your car? Well, it's something with a bunch of parts. These came together at a certain stage because of causal factors. They operate on each other for a while, on other things like the road. Some of them wear out and get replaced, and in the end they fall apart. Well, the Buddhist view of a person is that you're pretty much like that. Okay, so your parts are physical and mental, 
But just as the car has no self, any part of a car can change. It can be the same car, right? So you're like that. There's no part of you which defines you as you. So this is a bit like the ship of Theseus, this famous classical example where all the planks get replaced one by one because they go rotten. And then there's a question, is it the same ship? The physical structure has been replaced, but it's still got continuity. That's correct. But Buddhism's kind of adds something to that story, namely... When you've got these thing or things under a process of change, when are they really one thing? And the standard Buddhist answer to this is that it's a matter of convention. So it's useful for me to think of you as a Nigel because that helps me to sort of organise my email box, arrange an appointment, etc., etc. But in the end, you're a bunch of chunks of stuff. You could cut the cake in a different way, but some ways are more convenient than others. Fair enough, from your point of view, you might cut the world up differently. But from my point of view, it feels like I do have continuity despite change through self-consciousness. This is true. And the standard Buddhist view on this is that such is pretty much an illusion. And it's interesting to note that in modern cognitive science, something like this view is becoming very standard. So there's an American philosopher of mine called Dan Dennett, and he's made a lot of the fact that this picture we have, you might think of, there's lots of activities going on in the brain, and there's a control centre, which is where the eye is. And he argues, and I think quite persuasively, that that's just wrong about our cognitive architecture. There's part of us which sort of creates this illusion. So to that extent, Buddhist thinking of two and a half thousand years ago is very much in line with at least some very standard views in contemporary cognitive science philosophy of mind. It's quite a different underpinning, though. If somebody is basing their view on fMRI scans, a a detailed anatomy of the brain, the study of human behaviour in a scientific way, I can appreciate how they've arrived at that opinion. There's a question, though, about how a Buddhist philosopher would arrive at a position of the doctrine that there is no self. Well, a standard Buddhist answer is that if you engage in certain meditative practices, you can witness the flux of the transient and the illusion of self drops away. The thought is that if you can focus on your own mental processes, so to speak, you will see the coming and going, nothing remains, nothing holds them together except the sort of chain of causation between them. In that sense, it's very similar to the view that Hume expressed about the self. He said that when he looks into himself, uh, he can find impressions coming and going. What he doesn't find is any, any self, anything that's permanent holds them all together. I think this view is essentially correct. And you also mentioned that Buddhists differ about their view about the nature of reality in other respects, not to do with the self. I mean, maybe you could say a little bit about that. Okay. Buddhist metaphysics went through many stages in India and China. Everybody agrees that there is no self in the sense I explained. In early Buddhist philosophy, so it's about the first 500 years, the view is that anything with parts has the same kind of status as that of a person namely a bunch of parts in a constant state of change and evolution. But at the base of this, there are ultimate substances, things which are what they are independently of any conceptual constructions we might make. These are things with self-being, or the Sanskrit term is fabhava. And around the turn of the common era, a new kind of Buddhism arises called Mahayana, a greater vehicle, and it subjects to a fierce philosophical critique the view that there are these things with Svabhava. And this defines Mahayana metaphysically 
if you get rid of this kind of ultimate ground of reality, then how do you understand the world? And that metaphysical view is kind of centre stage in Mahayana Buddhism. There's nothing which is what it is in and of itself. And you can articulate that view in different ways. One obvious way to take it is in an idealist fashion, like Kant or Hegel. There is a, a deeply pessimistic strain that is, as it were, the start of Buddhist philosophy, which is all about human existence as filled with suffering. There are certain ways you can paint Buddhist philosophy to make it sound terribly pessimistic. When the Buddha taught his first sermon, he enumerated four doctrines, the Four Noble Truths. And the first is that all life is, and then there's one of these Sanskrit words that's really hard to translate, it's dukkha. Dukkha is often translated to suffering, but it means so many more things. It means mental and physical suffering, it means disappointment, it means unhappiness, it means all the things in life that you really don't want. And the thought is that life is like that. And one can't gainsay the fact that everybody's life contains stuff like that. The First Noble Truth goes a bit further than that, because Buddhism doesn't want to deny that there are good things in life too, but they have a downside. The downside is that when good things happen, you like them and you want them to carry on. And of course they don't, because everything in life is impermanent. You enjoy your health, well, as soon as you live long enough, it's going to disappear. So even the good things in life have this kind of negative kickback. Buddhism does not say that everything in life is horrible. It says that life is always going to be full of disappointments, even when these concern good things. So get your head around that. Now, I don't hear that as pessimism. I hear that as realism. I don't hear it as pessimistic, especially because... The second noble truth is there's a cause of why this happens. The third noble truth is, hey, you can get rid of the cause. If you get rid of the cause, you get rid of the effect. So Buddhism is telling you, hey, you know, life is you know, a bit of a shit. However, let me tell you something which is going to make it a lot better for you. You can live a much happier life. In that respect, Buddhism is not pessimistic. It's telling you how you can live a better, happier, more wholesome life. And what's the secret? Mm, okay. The first noble truth is that life is dukkha. The second noble truth is that a cause is Trishna. The idea is this, when things happen, the way we experience them depends not only on what happens, but on the mental attitudes we bring to bear on them, the attitudes of attachment and aversion. So when something happens we don't like it, we feel unhappy. When something happens we like, we get attached to it, and then when it ends, we feel unhappy. So the thought is, if you can get rid of these mental attitudes of attachment and aversion, then you won't suffer the corresponding unhappinesses. But what about the fourth noble truth? So the fourth noble truth is sometimes called the Eightfold Noble Path. So it's a set of practices or strategies to help you get rid of these unfortunate mental attitudes. And they're things like understand the world in which you live, don't lie to people, practice mindfulness. There are eight of these things. And the thought is that if you consciously practice these things you can change the way you see the world so that's essentially a moral position absolutely a central question of buddhism is the question of how should i live probably the most important ethical question it's faded out a bit from contemporary ethics but it plays center stage in ancient greek ethics so plato aristotle the skeptics the stoics the epicureans for all of them a really important question is, how should you live your life? And Buddhism is in the same bailiwick there. I think it's worth noting that once Buddhism changes from the early development to Mahayana, there's a sort of sea change in the ethics as well. Because the early 
Buddhist tradition is about how I dig myself out of this hole that I find myself in. But in the lay tradition also, there's an emphasis not only on digging yourself out the hole, but helping other people to dig themselves out the hole. Compassion becomes the central virtue of Mahayana Buddhism. The Mahayana Buddhist takes a vow that however and far they get down the path to enlightenment, they won't go the whole way until we can all go together, as it were. So early Buddhism can appear selfish or at least self-centered, but it's not possible to say that for Mahayana Buddhism. So it's become a political philosophy as much as anything else at that point because it's concerned how we live in relation to other people and and how as a society we help each other. That's right, although oddly enough there's very little discussion of political philosophy in Buddhism, partly because it's been driven by monastic orders. But what we've seen in the second half of the 20th century is a movement called Engaged Buddhism people who are Buddhist but really want to engage with the politics of the world. So it has a number of important figures, but one key figure is a Vietnamese Buddhist called Thich Nhat Hanh, who became politically active in the Vietnam War years. So since then he's gone on to theorise about how a Buddhist should act as a political animal. And, you know, the Dalai Lama often makes comments in the same way. So I think we're actually seeing something quite interesting at the moment. Buddhist philosophers are becoming interested in political theory in a way that they haven't really been very much traditionally. I'm intrigued by what happens when you end desire, when you end your attachment to things, to people, because those attachments are, for many people, what make life worth living. So there's a sense in which... You might end suffering, but there might be quite a high price to pay for ending that suffering. This is true. It is not one of the Four Noble Truths that suffering is a bad thing, but it's presupposed. Now, there are certain philosophers who thought that suffering is not necessarily a bad thing, and the obvious example is Nietzsche. Nietzsche thought that to live a full life, you need to throw yourself into it, and of course you're going to suffer in the process sometimes. But without the engagement and the concomitant suffering sometimes, life will be empty and meaningless. Now, look, it's a thoughtful, it's an intelligent view, and it's sort of the view that you're articulating. Now, I think in the end this view is wrong. If you can get rid of these attachments and aversions, it's not the same as flatlining. It's not life on Valium or life after a lobotomy or something. It's not disengagement from the world. Indeed, it had better not be if you want to be compassionate, because, hey, you've got to engage with the world big time if you want to be compassionate. Nor is it, I think to say that you cannot have valuable interpersonal relationships. It's not to say that you cannot love your kids or your partner or whatever, but it's to say that it has to be done with a certain non-clingingness, non-possessiveness, with an acceptance that things are going to go wrong sometimes. And you might say that all of these things are actually much better for a healthy relationship. And so Buddhist ethics, as I see it, encourages you to actually go into the world and do things and try to achieve things with people, with institutions. Things are going to go wrong sometimes. But when they go wrong, then you have to accept that. And of course, when things go right, you have to accept that too. Not cling to that either. So you're engaged with the world. You accept that bad things are going to happen. But when they do, because you know they're going to happen, you don't get upset about them. And when the good things happen, you don't pride yourself on this because the achievements are always going to be transient as well. So my old mate Jay Garfield put it like this once, Buddhism does not free you from the world, it frees you for the world. It allows you to engage in life without fearing the um, slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Now this is a fascinating 
set of philosophical beliefs and it's philosophy in the same sense as the philosophy of ancient Greek philosophy of contemporary philosophers. We talk about the nature of reality, the nature of self, how we should live. Why aren't we studying Buddhist thought as part of a philosophy degree? Mm. Well, that's a very good question. And it's certainly true that Western philosophers have not engaged much with the Asian traditions. There are some notable exceptions, Hegel, Schopenhauer, but generally speaking, Western philosophers haven't known much about philosophy. I think that's largely a feature of ignorance. But often what has gone along with this attitude of ignorance is an attitude of disvaluing the unknown. So it was not uncommon, say 50 years ago in Western philosophy, to hear the claim that Eastern traditions were not philosophy, they were religion, they were mysticism, they were oracular pronunciations and so on. Of course it has those aspects and so does a lot of Western philosophy. But for all that, as soon as you start to read the stuff, it's philosophy. Of course, you have to get used to the fact that these people are expressing themselves in a different linguistic style, in a different language of course, with different metaphors and historical allusions and so on. All philosophy does that. If you want to engage with any historical philosopher, you have to understand where they're coming from, you have to engage with the style they're writing. But once you do that, then it's absolutely clear that the Asian philosophical traditions deal with exactly the same kinds of questions as the Western traditions. Is there a God? What's the nature of reality? How should I live? How should I run the state? The answers are sometimes sort of familiar, sometimes very different. It's similar enough to feel at home once you cross the intellectual jump, but different enough to make this a very rewarding experience. Graham Priest, thank you very much. Thank you, Nigel. For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us.